the Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen, do, repeat for life. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Remarkable People Podcast, episode 50, the Louise Bedford and Chris Tate story. That's right. Twofer. In this remarkable episode, we're talking with two of Australia's top traders and trainers. So they not only help clients invest, but they teach traders how to invest and they have a remarkable program. And if you've listened to our show over the last year, you know our episodes have a certain title, but the shows sometimes go deep and wide. This is one of those shows. We talk about society. We talk about midlife crisis. We talk about coping and succeeding during COVID. We talk about all sorts of great life skills. So listen to the entire episode. It will benefit you, I promise. And like our slogan says, don't just listen, but do what you learn, repeat it, and have a great life. So at this time, let's get a short word from our sponsor, then get right into the episode with Louise and Chris. Enjoy the show, and I'll see you at the end for a special offer. Picture it. It's 2045, and you're sitting on beautiful Pensacola Beach with your grandkids, your kids, and maybe even another generation about to come. And your kids look at you, and they're like, Mom, Dad, how did you guys ever afford this gorgeous condo on Pensacola Beach? And your response? In 2021, the interest rates were low. The economy was booming. We took what we had and we invested it. And now we have this massive wealth and property to leave to you. Hey, I'm not a fortune teller, but I really do think that property in Pensacola is only going to skyrocket. I think that over the years, property almost always goes up historically all over the world, not just in America and in a gorgeous region of the world with the white sands. They call them singing beaches of Pensacola. I think this is a place you should look at investing or maybe moving to. So that's why I'm so excited that this episode, while I or Pam can't predict the future, I'm just teasing. But while we love living here and Pam loves living here, she sponsored this episode of the Remarkable People podcast, not only to bring you great content to help you grow, but maybe so you can move here one day and join us. So Pam Heinold Realty, that's P A M. H-E-I-N-O-L-D.com. That is the place to go to find your dream home, a rental property, maybe a second home, or any kind of move to the Pensacola area, buying or selling. Pam's your lady. Like I've said before, she's very calm and sweet and mild manner, but she is on top of things. She knows her stuff and she's a beast in the negotiating room. So check out Pam Heinold Realty. I hope you do have that success story and now enjoy this great episode with Louise and Chris. See you at the end. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Remarkable People podcast. And as you heard in the introduction, we have a very special episode with two great guests. We have Chris Tate and Louise Bedford, and they're both going to share their remarkable stories 
of where they went through life to bring them where they're at today. So their expertise isn't unfounded. They're going to talk to you about the difficulties and the challenges they faced, how they overcame them. So you can too. And then when it comes to financial wealth and planning, they're going to give you tips and tricks to secure your future as much as a man can. So at this time, you guys don't want to hear me, Louise, Chris, I'm not sure who's going to start, but why don't you start off and share your remarkable story, please? Yeah, let's do it. Look, I think that if we go back to before I was a trader, where I struggled through school, I had a fairly poor upbringing. But look, doesn't that give you motivation? It really makes you think, I don't want to be like this anymore. I want to achieve and and really have that ambition that so many people have inside them, but they just squash down because of life. So I did a couple of degrees It was really poverty city going through. But look, I'm so glad that I did because I got a fantastic job. It was amazing. I rose up through the executive ranks, American-based company actually, Dun & Bradstreet. I'm sure you would have heard of them. And Yeah, just a little company, small company. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was just flying high. I became a national manager. I was the youngest national manager at Dun & Bradstreet. They were offering all sorts of bonuses and, oh, it was just absolutely magnificent. And then one day... I felt a little sore bit in my finger and I thought, oh, I'll just ignore that, you know, too many things to do. I still was so full on for the company, you know, and and sometimes when we're that full on for the company, we forget that we have to actually look after ourselves. And that was on April 1st, 1996. It was no April Fool's joke. And Within the next two weeks, that pain went right up and down both arms and I couldn't move my arms. It was screamingly painful. My company, who I did adore, they didn't know quite what to do with me. They were very confused by all of this because I'd gone from being totally on to being unable to function. I hired somebody to help take me to the toilet to open doors for me to help me just be in that company with all of the things that you have to do you know you have to carry a bag you have to write things down all of that was totally precluded I took time off and I still couldn't get better and they couldn't work out what it was and years later I've got a diagnosis but I left that company and it broke my heart totally broke my heart. I went into trading because I'd been trading alongside my job and I had no idea trading alongside my job would end up being my full-time career and that I'd be helping people all around the world to trade and overcome their physical obstacles, overcome their mental obstacles, and develop a separate source of income. So, so now before you go on much too, in a nutshell, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Before you go on, were you with an American company, America based, or were you in Australia? No, in Australia, yeah. I certainly flew around the place, but the Australian side of things for, for that firm was huge. So I had 72 people reporting to me. It was, it was 
an amazing opportunity and I don't regret a thing, but I did forget to look after my body and my health during that time. So from you go through school, I assume you, like you say, a couple degrees, went through college, you got the job at Dun & Bradstreet. And then from there to when you got sick, how long of a time period was that? Four years. So four years of just neglect, you were focused on work and productivity and the excitement, but it took a toll on your physical body. When that happened, what were the things you were thinking or feeling? Because you go from the top of the world and your dream job to now your health, your career, everything's fading away. What were the things you faced at that time? And then as you progress your story or transition to how did you get through that? Yeah, look, a lot of it was because it was such an assault on my identity where I thought that I was going in one direction and then I had to switch direction completely and I didn't have all of the funds to be able to be a full-time trader at that stage. It was very much on a shoestring. It was one of those situations where you have to really look in the mirror and say, who are you really at your core when you strip away all of the aspects that make you popular, you know, all of the things as a human, status and cars and clothes, get rid of all of that exterior shell and then what have you got left? Who are you, Louise, at your core? Are you going to fight? Are you going to develop some level of inner skill here in a different area? I typed with a pen in my mouth because my hands couldn't move. I found a broker who would allow me to say the numbers to him and then he'd add them up on the calculator so I knew how many shares to buy because a lot of it is just an algorithm to work out how many shares you can buy. He was somebody who really was a gruff person, but he got he got it. He got the idea that if he does this, then we both make money. And it was just like a whole new world opened up to me. I decided then and there that I was going to be a trader for life. I was going to be doing this in the old person's home. I couldn't imagine another way of living because I didn't want to give that much of my life away to somebody else. And that was the key. All of a sudden, I had bought back my life and I had time to be able to explore all of the physical therapies I needed to go through. I went to a public swimming pool because moving in the water was sort of relieving for my arms and I met people there. We called ourselves the mutants. There was a group of people with disabilities. It's probably not very polite of us, but we called ourselves that, so it's different, isn't it? There yeah, were people. <laughs> yeah, it's just, if somebody's yeah. that sensitive, they're not listening to this podcast. There's people from all <laughs> over the world, thing. different worldviews, but you got to have tough skin, so don't worry about it. We're, we're not meaning to insult anybody. It's just what you called yourself. <laughs> there were people with amputations, people with brain tumours, people who were hearing impaired, vision impaired, and we were all in the hydrotherapy pool and we didn't let anybody get away with self-pity or self-doubt and we egged each other on and a lot of those people became my very first traders that I trained so that they could get off welfare and they could provide for themselves and their family using the markets. And it was a great opportunity, yeah. Now, if, you, if you don't mind me asking, what 
did you have? Like, what were you diagnosed with? Because it sounds like for a while it was a mystery, but what did they finally diagnose it as? Yeah, it's a situation. It's a neurological situation. It's genetic as well. I've got a couple of cousins with the same situation. It's focal dystonia. It's where your brain stops speak, speaking to either your arms or your voice box. It's sort of two areas, which is one of those situations that people just didn't know about back then. It, it's not a common diagnosis. A lot of musicians get it where they'll get it in just one tiny part of their body, but with mine it was up and down both arms. So it took me three years to be able to move again. Wow, okay. And then what were the steps that you did? And what we'll do is we'll lead into when you met Chris and how you met Chris and then Chris will do your story to when you met, and then we'll continue there from where you are today. Yeah, so good plan. <laughs> when you have this, you're recovering, you're trying to work it out. I'm sure you had mental, you had physical challenges, you had emotional, spiritual. What would you say some of the hardest parts of this process were? Definitely the hardest part was dealing with myself. You know, I was alone for a lot of the day. I mean, it, I know with isolation now we've all been alone, so I think you know what I'm talking about. There's some things that go on in your head when you're not around people all the time that really have no place for belonging in somebody who's sane's head. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I was just talking to um, one of our <laughs> former guests. I like to stay in touch. And I was talking with Rob Jackson, and he deals with people with all sorts of addictions and all sorts of problems. And he said with COVID globally, you're talking a 200 to 300% increase in everybody's practice right now because of the mental illness. And he was, we were talking specifically about the amount of time people are on the internet and video games and the unreality, mm -hmm. and they're just getting sucked into this depression and a lot of issues are coming out of it. So what you're saying is spot on, not just in Australia, but in America, and I think all over the world. Yeah, I think you're totally spot on with it. And Probably the other aspect as well was not feeling productive and useful. You know, at that stage when I wasn't earning enough money out of trading where I was just kicking off and even though I had been trading for about five years at that stage, it wasn't like I was trading to the level of a full-time trader. That first year of being able to struggle my way through and, and work my way out with the markets, that made all the difference. And that's still the basis of what I do today. But at that stage, I had no idea really what I was doing. I didn't have a written trading plan. I didn't know what instruments suited my trading style. And I certainly didn't have the self-knowledge required to excel with the markets. A lot of trading is to do with your self-knowledge and, and your self-realizations. If you look at the amount that you're earning, you rarely exceed your level of self-development in terms of your earning capacity. And it's the same with traders. So I had a massive growth curve that first year that I was out from my job. I met a gentleman, I was coming out of a, a doctor's appointment at a medical center and he, the doctor had told me that I just have to get used to this. I have to adjust that your arms don't move and people have got worse problems. So just grow, grow, grow into this. Realise 
that this could be forever and you're just going to have to live with it. And I was incredibly upset. I hit the button for the elevator with my foot because, you know, arms don't work. (laughs) (laughs) And the elevator doors opened as I was crying and this beautiful gentleman came out of the elevator and he said, oh, love, what's wrong? And you know when somebody gives you sympathy, oh, you just lose it, don't you? Like if you're me anyway. So I totally, totally bawled my eyes out and he said, come with me to my office. He sat me down and he said, tell me what's going on. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm in a medical office. Who is this person? Turns out, he was the neurologist who helped me. So he wow, gave me one little test. Up. Yeah, it was on his lunch break. Yeah. <laughs> so he gave me one little test and he said, I know exactly what's wrong with you and I can fix you. So all he had to do was rub some velvet over my fingers where I couldn't see what the velvet was and he asked me to identify it, which shows that there's a gap between what I could feel and what I could express. And he said, I know exactly what you've got. So he, over the next year and a half, two years, worked with me and really helped. So first of all, find a mentor. Find somebody you can believe in and follow, somebody with your best interests at heart who cares for you on more than just a surface level. Second, sink yourself into their teaching. Immerse yourself in that person and exclude everything else. Once you've got your person, stop looking. Stop chasing the next shiny object because that isn't going to help your success or your recovery. And then do what they say. Just follow along. Be a little little lamb following the shepherd. You don't have to innovate. You don't have to do anything different. If they've got the answer, follow what they're saying, David. Have you been reading our show notes? (laughs) (laughs) Did you know what the theme of the podcast is, our tagline? exactly what you just said it's listen do repeat it and have a great life so exactly what you said you literally followed our motto so man you're what a perfect perfect guest (laughs) oh i'm glad because that's what works yeah yeah so okay so now you're recovering you're getting better and then from there, where do you go? Do you start with another corporation? Do you start your own trading? And then how do you yeah. and Chris connect? And then Chris, yeah. we're going to rewind and go back to your story, but you're starting at birth. <laughs> so my futures broker, who we're still in touch with, actually, he said to me, there's a guy who's got a publishing company. He is looking for authors. He asked for my top three clients. I, I want to give him your name. Can I give him your name? And I said, yeah, sure. All right. So next minute, I've got Jeff Wright, who was the founder of Wright Books. They merged with Wiley and you'll probably know Wiley Books. It's the second largest publisher in the world. Wright Books asked me to write a book. At that stage, I thought, you have to write a book. If somebody asks you to write a book and they're a publisher, you have to write a book. Who who knew that he made that offer to thousands of people and they didn't do a thing? (laughs) Sometimes a bit of innocence is a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, but also that's a great point you made. Opportunity (laughs) comes, you got to seize it. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote my first book back in, I think I started it in 96 and then I finished, but by the time it was published, it was 97. 
And by then I was friends with Mr. Christopher Tate and I asked him to do the foreword of the book and he wrote a foreword and it said, because he's also got a book on options, he said in that initial foreword, this is the second best book on options in the world. <laughs> Meaning <laughs> his was the first? <laughs> nice. What's the problem? <laughs> Nothing, man. You're confident. That's good. <laughs> All right, well, let's pick up there. Let's pick up there with the transition. So, Chris, well, first off, before we go forward, Louise, is there anything else up to this point that's significant you want to touch on, or are we okay to transition to Chris? Yeah, let's go over to Chris. Okay, awesome. And we're going to come back to you. We're just going to transition. So, Chris, fill us in. Your story, it literally, I made a joke about childhood, but who, who, how did God form Chris Tate? Before I kick off, I actually want to touch on something Louise said, and this is the notion of identity and corporations. <clears throat> my, my view of people who are employed is that they're largely in a, a romance that is unrequited, so that whilst you may give everything to your company, your corporation, whatever, don't bank on that being reciprocated in any way, shape or form. It's a little bit like being an athlete. You can give absolutely everything to your sport, to your team, but the moment you break or or you drop a cog, you're cut very, very quickly and you're cast adrift almost as an orphan. And, and I think one, one of the things that people should take away from Louise's first point is that at the end of the day, it's you as a closed unit it's not you as an employee, you're an individual. And to draw identity from your corporation or people you spend eight to ten hours a day with, whilst I know a lot of people do it, and I used to see it all the time, it's really not that healthy because everything you are and everything you do is based upon a reflection from somebody else, something else. And it's not the healthiest way in the world to live. And it, as Louise said, it strips your identity from you. The moment it disappears, you become a non-entity. And you have to go through that horrible process of rebuilding and just working out who the hell you might be. And so it's just sort of a salutary point for people who are, who are deeply invested in their corporate careers. But... No, to actually, if we can hang on that, I think you're so spot on correct. A lot of people go through what Americans call a midlife crisis. Do they refer yeah. to that in Australia? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So I've always been under the impression that a midlife crisis is, man, we're born, we go through grade school, we go through college, we get, you know, we try to get advanced degrees or get a job and we work, 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 then we have kids and it's like, well, what's going on? And I think a midlife crisis is nothing more than things actually start to slow down and we get time to reflect and think about our lives. And like you said, we found so much of our identity in being told what we're supposed to do or the company we work for. Like, again, I don't know about Australia, but in America, we have a horrible social habit. One of the first questions we ask is, what do you do oh, for hey, me? yeah, exactly. Hey, Chris, yeah. what yeah. do you do? And that's your wrapped up identity. So you're seeing the same thing out there. And that's what you're discussing, correct? Yeah, and it, it, it's that thing. The best quote I've ever come across for midlife crisis is from Dante's Inferno. 
Dante Alighieri is descending to hell. He, he says in partway through it, midway through life's journey, I found myself in a dark forest. I knew not which way to go. And what, he, what he's reflecting upon is he's gotten partway through his life and, and all of a sudden what comes next is opaque, which is very, very much what you said in that you go to school, you go to college, you start the corporate climb, but then all of a sudden you're in the C-suite and you shut the door and it's quiet and you go, what the hell am I doing here? And why am I doing it with people I don't actually like? Because the, the odd thing about, and I found this in stockbroking, is that you spend eight to ten hours a day with people you wouldn't invite into your home. And I, I, could, I could never see the sense of that. If, if I'm not going to have you around for a barbecue by the pool, why am I wasting my day sitting here listening to you gibbering on about inanities and watching your behaviour and all those other things that go on, particularly in corporate finance. And it, it makes you sit up and think, well, what am I actually doing with my life? Where, where is it actually supposed to go? And more importantly, who am I to actually, as a person, want to send it somewhere or go somewhere? I couldn't agree with you more. And that's something that we need to start living today, no matter how old we are, but teaching our children so they don't fall into the same trap. But with all that said, tell us about your background, Chris. What made you the man you are and brought you to where you are today? I, I always find that to be a fascinating question because I was having this chat with a, a friend of mine the other day who I uh, trained with. We, we when you have, say train, train in what sport? Uh, we're, we're, we're both very, very long-term martial artists. You and I discussed that in the past. So, Do you have yeah. a specific martial arts you want to disclose or just keep it quiet? And, and now we're just broken old blokes. <laughs> we, 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 we both went through the sort of traditional school of martial arts. But because we grew up and were associated with violent environments, we quickly realised that Traditional martial arts don't work in, in any way, shape or form. Agree completely. And, and, and that all, all confrontation is a psychological and an emotional event first before anything else occurs. And we now, he's now a full-time combatives instructor. And we have this conversation at breakfast where we sort of look around and we go, how the hell did we end up here? And I've had that thought numerous times. I had it recently after getting out of hospital floating around my pool. Because I'm not the world's best sleeper, I'll often float around the pool as the sun's coming up. And I, I was looking around and you, you simply think, how the hell did I get here? Because if you rewind your life, I think one of the mistakes people make about their sort of autobiography is that they think that it's a, a linear progression and that if they rewound the tape again, you'd get the same result again. And, and I don't think that's true. I think there are so many bits of happenstance and luck in sort of people's journey that, that, that a small alteration, a, a door not opening at the right time, it changes the trajectory completely. I mean, my, my background is professionally different from other people in my arena. I'm, 
I was an academic cum bouncer before I moved into trading. I, w- I was heading down the route of doing a PhD in immunology, which was a, a personal interest of mine because of illness. But I was paying my way through university by throwing people out of pubs, which is a, a wonderful sociological experiment. It's a wonderful observation in human behaviour and just seeing how people behave. Because what is intriguing, one of the things that did instill upon me was that I I have many flaws, one of which is arrogance. And part of that arrogance is that I, I believe that I can actually look at people and the way they behave and predict the trajectory of their life and see where they will be in X number of years' time. Because I think by the time you get to 21, 22, your, your personality and who you are, without a dramatic shift or, or a pivot event, is largely fully formed. That's the person you're going to be. So when I was throwing people through the front door of the local pub and they were the same age as me and they'd come back the next week and I'd have to do the same thing again, I knew exactly which way their life was going to be. And... Part of that and part of the way I grew up instilled in me a desire that the one thing I don't want to be is that person. You don't want to be that static individual who repeats the same day, week, month, year of their life over and over again, a bit like Groundhog Day, and, and that's what people do. And I think in part, this is if we, if we circle back to this notion of midlife crisis, I think that's what happens to people in part in that they get to a point and they realise they're repeating the same day over and over again. And it's not going to the pub and being thrown out by someone like me, but they're waking up in the same place, they're associating with the same people, they're seeing the same people all the time, they have lunch at the same place, they have the same lunch, they come home at the same time. And all of a sudden they get that sense that they're caught in this treadmill. Now, in many ways, and this is my arrogance against speaking, I don't think a lot of people, your listeners excluded, have the self-awareness to realise that that is occurring, but they feel that tension and they don't understand where the tension's coming from. And many will self-medicate. A lot of the older people, when I was a young broker, would self-medicate heavily with either alcohol or drugs. Now, in part, that was because that was the environment at the time, but it was also, I think, just to dampen the noise and the noise that was in their head. So I actually think when people are undergoing this self-medication routine, it's to quieten their brain because their brain is asking them questions. It's saying to you, why are you here and why are you doing this? And because I don't have an answer, because I don't want to try and find an answer, because the answer might be painful. The answer might be, well, you've wasted the first X number of years trying to be something you're not. Why don't you now try and, try and find what you actually want to be? And, and that, that's a painful conversation to have with yourself. Uh, the, the conversation I used to have with myself is I, I grew up in a violent household. My mother was a drug addict who was in and out of prison. My father was a former soldier who had PTSD, which I now recognise now that I'm older. I didn't recognise at the time. I just thought he was a dickhead who needed a very good kicking and he very nearly got one at several instances. 
the realisation I had is you don't want to be that person. So you have an away form of motivation. You're being pushed away from something. You don't know where you're going, but at least you know what you don't want to be. And I think the conversation that goes on inside people's heads is you don't want to be this person, so who do you want to be? And they don't know because they don't want to have the conversation because it is it is that reflection that causes people pain, that they look at themselves and go, well, I don't like the person I am, but I don't know who I would be. And that sets up this internal tension. So you get the self-medication, you get the breakdown in marriages, you get the breakdown in careers, you get all that sort of collateral damage that flows from people who are, look, if you were to use a, an expression, they're probably in some form of pain, but they don't know they're in pain. And so they don't know where to go and what to do. Yeah, I think exactly what you're talking about is what Louise was talking about when we were talking about COVID. Right now, people are in isolation and they're hearing that noise. So they're medicating it with internet. They're medicating it with drugs. They're mm. medicating it with porn. I even spoke with someone, I'm a cigar enthusiast. Cigar sales and tobacco sales are up, at least again in America, over 250% because people are at home smoking more, just filling that void. Yeah, so I think you're spot on. But we, we have the same thing here in Australia, that alcohol sales have gone through the roof because we, we endured a very, very long, long lockdown period which had some very, very strange rules. I couldn't, for example, get someone to mow my lawn uh, standing outside by themselves with no one for 50 metres around them. But I could, if I wanted to, go down to our local liquor store and spend, four, spend 45 minutes wandering around, working out what I was going to drink for the evening. And so we, we, you know, we experienced the same thing. And when you talk about the psychological impact of COVID, we have, as do most countries, suicide helplines. Our suicide helpline is overwhelmed, particularly with calls that were coming out of Victoria because our lockdown was so harsh and so extended. And if you want to get in to see any sort of mental health professional, you've got no hope uh, at all. And so... That the moment people are left alone with their own thoughts, they're, they're actually in trouble. If you don't have something as a, a belief structure of any sort, if you don't have any form of spirituality, if you don't have other people around you, then you're caught in this little isolated thought bubble. And, and we've seen the power of the internet to form echo chambers for people. So they get their own thoughts reflected back to them and amplified and magnified so that all of a sudden small things become giant catastrophes and they get out of all proportion. And they get out of all proportion because you simply don't have one of your mates to come around, sit next to you, have a beer and slap you upside the head and go, mate, you're being an idiot. Stop. And it's that social interaction that I think is causing people or the lack of interaction that's causing people the problems. Yes. And you're in Australia. We're in America. So we have you have socialized medicine there, correct? 
We do. We, yeah, we, so we have universal health care. Universal health care. So if you're listening, we have listeners from all around the world and you have different societal society setups. In America, we still have it where we can choose our doctor. And even though it's getting harder and harder to get in, you can usually get in. But then once you get in, is that a qualified doctor or is it a lousy doctor? Yeah. So for the mental care, what Chris was yeah. saying, if you're not from a, an environment with socialized healthcare, universal healthcare, the system's overwhelmed because everybody's on the same system, seeing the same doctors, yeah. correct? We, we, we have a two-tier two system in that we have a universal healthcare system in that we have very, very large public hospitals. So, for example, if you're involved in a road trauma, you'll be chopped to one of the very large trauma centres we have because that's where the best and brightest go. But they also serve as generalised providers of medicine. We also have a private system that runs in parallel to that. And the private system allows you to choose hospital and provider of choice. And so we, we have a two-stream system that enables choice. But even, even in the private system, providers are completely overwhelmed because all, all the surplus, all, any excess capacity that there was is now gone uh, simply because of the scale of sort of the mental health difficulties people are facing, particularly among teenagers, uh, because we, we had a year, almost a full year of homeschooling. And if it's one thing teenagers need to socialise them properly, it's other teenagers. But it's also other teenagers around other adults and, and because the role of school is to provide, I think, not only in education, but to point out to children that there are other adults out there who will help them. If you come from the north of England, we call them clan fathers. It is adult males of equal standing to your own father who act as role models and who, when you're doing the wrong thing, will actually pick you up and point it out to you. And school has that and particularly sport. Sport for young men is immensely important because the role of the coach is immensely important in acting as that guide, mentor, just someone else in their life who's an adult who they trust. And, of course, when you're in complete lockdown for a year, uh, there is no sport whatsoever for young people. And, and sport's a big thing. It's a, it's a very large part of the Australian national identity. It's something we really hang our hat on, perhaps much to our detriment. But in most Anglo-Western countries, sport's a big thing. It's the same in the US, same in the UK, same in Canada, same in New Zealand. Sport is almost a centre point of society. And so when you don't have football matches going on, you don't have that ability to get together with others. So let me ask you this question, transitioning, there's a lot of people in these echo chambers. There's a lot, like you said, there's a lot of people struggling. What is your advice if our listeners are there right now? I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling, what have I done with my life? Where am I going? What are your steps to help that help start them get out of that hole? I, I actually think I'm, my, my view as a scientist is that everything in life can be simplified. And if you can't simplify it, you don't understand it well enough. It's really that easy. I if agree completely. Even Einstein would say that. Yeah. If, if you can't explain it 
to an eight-year-old, then you just don't understand the topic at all. I have a very simple view of humans. Humans were designed to do several things. We were designed to eat together, sing together, dance together. We are very, very, very simple things. And when you look at longevity studies, these great longitudinal studies that look at how long people live, they notice something very, very, very interesting about sort of the the underpinnings of what occurs in their societies. They sing together. They dance together. They eat together. The notion of the family meal has evaporated. One of the most distressing things that both Louise and I see is that when we go out for lunch or dinner or somewhere and you're, you're sitting there, you'll see a family of four, five, six, and they're all on their mobile phone. They're not talking to one another at all. And, and you even see this with young adults where they're not talking to one another. Louise and I had this fascinating experience. We were having uh, dinner at Marina del Rey which is a lovely location. It was beautiful. It's warm. We were sitting outside and we were there chatting and we were watching this young couple who were obviously on their first or second date. They barely spoke to one another because they were, they were both on their phone and they were probably looking at us thinking, we're silly old people talking to one another because what's on my phone is much more interesting than the person opposite me. How that could be, I have no idea particularly if you want to have sex with them. I, I'm not certain how that's going to work for anybody. I, I, don't, <laughs> know, I, I, don't, I don't know how modern dating rituals work other than, you know, you just send nude photos of yourself to someone randomly, which, which I don't get. But my advice to get out. I mean, when lockdown ends, get out. We, we've seen, when you look at the literature here and also in the UK, We've seen enormous improvements in mental health when people do things like join choirs, they join a dancing class, anything that gets them in contact with others. And it it seems to be this need for a shared communal experience, which is why choirs are so powerful for people, because it is a shared communal experience. They go there to be with others and to do a like-minded thing. It's a little bit like football here. But when you go to an AFL match, a very large game between two very, very popular sides will put 90,000, 95,000 people in a stadium. Now, I don't actually think all of them have gone to watch the football. That's part of it. But they've gone to have a shared experience with people who are like-minded. And they've gone to experience the emotions that that brings about because sporting events are very emotional and they're often very cathartic. Even if your team loses, you've had a period where you've stood in the bleachers, you've had really crappy takeaway food, you've probably gotten cold, you've been with your mates, you've yelled at the referee, you've yelled at the opposition and you go home happy and you all go home on the train together. So you have that communal experience, that that sense of being part of a tribe. And perhaps if people are at home and they don't have many people around them or just their family, you could activate something that I've called quarantine questions. I've done this with my family, certainly in the the hard part of the lockdown, like the first six months were the worst. (laughs) 
So I'll perhaps read out some of these questions, perhaps to either share with your family or if you are alone in the house alone or the apartment, then talk with somebody about this. Find somebody else who's alone that you can share with, even over Zoom. You could have dinner over Zoom. So the first one is, what am I grateful for today? There is so much evidence around gratitude studies that once we can find one or two things, but ideally three things that we're grateful for each day, that lifts our overall well-being. The next question, who did I check in with or connect with today? Make sure that you don't have an entire 24 hours where you don't speak to another human being. Did I get outside today? Did I move my body today? What beauty did I create or what fun did I have today? And when I raise these questions with my kids over dinner, we'd sometimes choose all of them or I'd get the kids to choose two or three. It would spark a family discussion. What good news did I hear today? Who was I kind to today? And very importantly, what am I looking forward to And all of these ideas are designed to get us out of just thinking about ourselves, get us thinking into a broader way of behaviour, thinking about other people, other people's needs, that idea of sonder where we're not even aware that other people have a full and rich life completely separate where they are the star of their own narrative. We have to get ourselves out of our own little echo chamber within our head and think about other people so that we can reach out to them and then the byproduct is we do better with our own mental mindset as well yeah i think that's fantastic do you think you could email me those questions and i'll put them in the show notes so our listeners can download them at their will like we'll just put a link and you guys can download those awesome thank you all right don't you also think that part of the unfortunate thing about modern society is that it has convinced the individual that they are the most important unit, that they are the be-all and end-all. So you have a generation of people who self-centred, self-obsessed narcissists. The notion of service to something else or service to others is a complete anathema to them. And and you've undoubtedly seen this experience as well, David, where you will go somewhere and you'll watch someone and all they do is take photographs of themselves. Selfie. In America, we call them the selfie. It's intriguing. And the wonderful wonderful statistic I have is that last year more people were killed taking selfies than were killed by sharks. They've fallen off things, been hit by cars, been hit by trains, just done stupid things. And Louise and I had this experience when we were in, where were we, Singapore? And we were by the pool and there was a young girl there who, what I think we stopped counting when she was heading towards having just taken 100 photos of herself. Nothing else, just herself. And, And to me that is a form of mental illness, as narcissism is. But it does seem to be contagious, this notion that it's about me. And the echo chamber seems to reinforce that it's about me and about the things I want and I need. 
And without wanting to give people a slap, people are always talking about their rights. Very, very rarely do you hear someone talk about their responsibilities. Everybody's full of rights, but nobody's full of responsibilities. We we had this here during lockdown where you have the the usual, (coughs) pardon me, (coughs) lunatic fringe, and it was all about their rights to do things not about their responsibilities to a wider society and to the people around them. And and, and it was just intriguing to watch people's self-centredness sink in uh, as, uh, look, lockdown is not easy for anybody. We we had an extremely harsh lockdown here in Victoria uh, where travel was restricted. There was only a few reasons you could leave the house and society virtually shut down. But again, instead of people understanding that it was for the greater good, because we'd seen what had happened in the US and the UK, and we didn't want that to occur here with it getting out of control. So we followed the model of New Zealand being an island. We just shut the place. And that made it easier. But again, people's sense of selfishness came to the fore. And it was, it was really quite interesting to watch. And reading the historical accounts, there does seem to be a disconnect between the way people behave during the Spanish flu and now. There does seem to have been a shift in this notion of societal responsibility. At present, you could just get a bit of a ticking off and a warning from the police for not wearing a mask. During the, during the Spanish flu here in Australia, you would go to jail. There was no question, no no mucking around, no arguing. It was just mask is mandatory. If you don't wear one, you go to jail. And here you'd have people who turn up and actively provoke the police and all that gets ticking off. And it is that sense of selfishness that I also think fuels this sense of disconnect because if it's all about you, how on earth can you, you connect with another person who's sitting there thinking, well, it's all about me as well? It's, <clears throat> if, I, if I was to use an analogy, and I'm glad my wife doesn't listen to these things, it's a little bit like my mother-in-law. <laughs> my mother-in-law's approach to a conversation is, that's enough about me talking about me. Why don't you talk about me for a while? And, and so when, when you have that attitude, there's no possibility of all of connecting with anyone. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And I think the whole biblical model is always about others and about the team and about, you know, man, mankind should not be alone. And I think historically, no matter what your worldview is, that's proven. We need each other. And when we become just that self-absorbed narcissist, no good comes from it. And then, in America, just in 50 years, the change that our country's seen, you know, JFK, even a little earlier, he said, ask not what yes. your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And that was the Democratic side. Yes. Now it's just gimme, 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 gimme here. And I think it's all over the world like that. Yes. I, I, I'm, <clears throat> I, I'm a bit, oh, pardon me. 
Actually, mm-hmm. I'll kick off with this one because I've got a point to make. I think it's also to do with internal and external locus of control. So internal locus of control where is where you take full responsibility for your own actions and external locus of control is where you look outside to see what you can blame. Now, there's times and places for each, but we find the best traders, I mean, this is our area trading, the best traders have an internal locus of control. They look to see within themselves what they can control. They control that and they ignore everything else because they don't have control over that. Now, currently what we've got is a whole people whole group of people that with an external locus of control but where they're blaming so they're blaming government structures they're blaming whole countries for this pandemic instead of looking to see what can they personally control they're looking at it as a fair and unfair they've anchored to their previous COVID life and said that that is where they need to get back to. They're saying that is fair and what we are experiencing now is unfair and I blame these things because of that. Now, that in itself is a seismic shift that we all have to make. There's there's a lot of research about loose societies and tight societies and I'll just show, show you what I mean by that. So a tight society is considered to be somebody living in Japan. They are aware of the rules of the society. They don't go beyond those rules. Therefore, the police force barely has anything to do. When Chris and I have travelled over there for our, our business, it's amazing. The police really are bored out of their brains because that tight society understands the rules and they all comply. There's a lot of people living in a very small space and without that cooperation society breaks down compare it to a loose society which is considered to be more like New Zealand where rebellious behavior and I'm saying in a good way sometimes too rebellious behavior is encouraged that you can question authority that you don't have to follow the rules and that things are a little bit more lax now currently all of the loose societies that are being forced to have tight society rulings because of COVID, they're the ones that are struggling because of that fair versus unfair and the inappropriate anchoring to pre-COVID life where they considered that to be what they need to get back to. Yeah, that's completely right. And the term fair my kids still, they're at teenagers. I got 16 and 18. They're just starting to see, but I would never let them use that word. I said, fair is what you pay to get on a bus. There's no such thing as fair in life. If you're looking for fair, you're always going to be disappointed. So I couldn't agree with you more. So, okay, go ahead, Chris. Uh, no, take that uh, oops, thought. Uh, and then when you're done, continue. You went from, you know, you were in a dysfunctional yeah. home, your mom, your dad, you became a bouncer. You're going through college. And then, so finish this thought and then pick up your story there when you're ready. Yeah, no, I was, I was just about to sort of touch on your point of fair and unfair. Life just is. One of, one of the things that people struggle with with the universe is that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. That's just the nature of it. There is this awful randomness to it that trips people up. Now, I, I'm I'm fortunate in that, as you can tell, male and pale. So instantly born with an advantage, instantly. 
but it's incumbent upon the individual to make whatever they make from the things that they encounter, which is why I'm, I'm not a fan of self-help books. I, I, I hate them with a passion. I, I regard them as, you know, they're mental candy. Uh, they, they just, uh, they give people a, a strange little lift for two minutes where like a two-year-old has had too much sort of sugar. They run round and round and round and round in circles and then they bang into the wall, fall over and cry. Then they repeat the process. But I always recommend that people should read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning simply because of the power of the book. And it's not a self-help book by any stretch of the imagination. There's no motivational nonsense. There's no magic mantras. There's nothing. It's just one person's story of how to cope with the most appalling of circumstances. And so not a fan of that. But what it, what, it, what it teaches is that it is incumbent upon you to make the best of what occurs, that you, you fix your mental model in such a way where you just go, okay, this is it. This, these are the things I, I have to do and I have to cope with. That, that's just the way it is. And one of the things that I think is missing from people is resilience, which, which is why I think that when you get people like, and I don't, you, you've probably come across him, uh, former Navy SEAL and Army Ranger Dave Goggins, who I regard as a little bit of a nutcase, but... <laughs> I've listened uh, but, to him. I've listened to him while I'm on runs. Sometimes it inspires me to run faster and harder. Yeah, and, but, but I think he's... It, whilst the message is over the top, I think his message has resilience with pe- sorry resonance with people because he demonstrates resilience, and so few people demonstrate resilience. People fall apart at the merest hint of things going wrong, which is why we have road rage. It's why we have people bursting in tears when they can't park the car, or here in Australia when we went into lockdown, fighting in the supermarket over toilet paper. They just don't have that internal resilience that looks inward and says, well, my belief structure is this, therefore. It's I have no belief structure. I have no internal centering of any sort. So, therefore, anything that tips me off kilter completely distorts and disturbs my worldview. And it comes back to what Louise was saying, that it, once your worldview is distorted, in any way, shape or form, and you've got nothing to come back to, then you really, really begin to struggle. And so if, you know, if we use that as a segue to my sort of career, I've always had a fairly strong internal worldview. And it's really quite simple. And it, it revolves around a very, very simple mantra I have. And it's incredibly simple, and it simply says, don't be a dickhead. There are enough dickheads in the world, and we don't need another one. And unfortunately, it's not a mantra that a lot of people take on board because a lot of people, if you watch the way they act, seem to fail at the first step. And it comes back to simple things. Say please. Say thank you. Just be polite. Be kind. Do the right thing. 
And these are all difficult things. And if I can drop in an anecdote, Louise and I had lunch with a representative of quite a large broking firm, what, three years ago, four years ago. And we had another meeting to go to. And so he said, look, don't worry, I'll fix the bill. Shouldn't be a problem. We went, okay, good. We went to our other meeting. We went back to this place again, what, two weeks later, because it's a regular place we go to. And the head of house took us aside and said, well, you know that guy you had lunch with? Yep. He skipped out without paying. He went out the back. And then he wondered why we wouldn't do business with him. And, and, and we're not talking about the fact that we've just spent $7,500 at dinner. We, we spent like $40. And he, because it was obviously a thing he did as part of his identity, he skipped out the back. And he, he, he was perplexed that we would not refer business to him. But again, it comes back to that simple thing. If you aim to do the right thing, then life becomes easier. Yeah, and I think it also becomes easier. It gets back to dealing with people who have your same values. You know, they may not have the same experiences. They may not have the same thought processes. They might not even be from your industry. But as long as you share values, that's really the key because then you'll work out all of the peripheral issues. I think that's, that's, that's the central issue, provided you share a core belief system somewhere. It, it doesn't matter what your background is or what the, what the wrapping is of your belief system. If you believe in being a decent person, then that's a core belief. And if someone else shares that core belief, it doesn't matter whether they draw that belief system from Christianity, Islam, Judaism, being a Buddhist. It, it doesn't matter because you've got that core belief that decency is the prime driver of all things. And you, you, you now share a common language. And once you share a common language with someone, you, you have a common shared experience. And once you have a common shared experience, you begin to see the world in the same way. And once you begin to see the world in the same way, you can begin to offer support for that person or they can begin to offer support for you or together you can offer support for others who might be struggling, who might be tripping up. So it comes back to a central belief structure. And I think, again, we loop back to the same point. Outside of people believing that they're the most important thing in the world, I don't think people have a central belief structure of any sort other than, and as, as you said, David, this notion now that in America, the predominant mindset seems simply to be give me because it's all about me. And the intriguing thing is I saw a survey that polled Chinese high school students and American and UK high school students, and it said, what do you want to be when you grow up? More than half of the US and UK student high school students simply said, I want to be famous. Why? Oh, because, you know, famous on YouTube, that sort of thing. But they couldn't answer why. Half the Chinese students said they wanted to be an astronaut. Now, if I'd gone back in time to 1960s America 
and I had polled US high school students said, what do you want to be? I can guarantee you famous would not be one of them, but astronaut would be because that's an achievable internal thing. It's not about me. It's about service. And, and I, I must admit, this is the tremendous pivot shift I've seen as a bit of a history buff in the US in that it has shifted from this notion of service to the individual and only the individual, where I, 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 look, at, I look at America now and think there is no way known you could put someone on the moon now because whilst the technology exists, the will and the capacity to serve in that way doesn't exist. I mean, you, you look at the Second World War. America was the arsenal of democracy. It powered the world. That is an act of service. But I'm, I'm not certain that with this idiosyncratic narcissism that people all around the world now seem to be possessed by, courtesy of social media, that that could be a thing. I mean, I'm, I'm very surprised at the response some governments have been able to mount to COVID because it has required this, this much broader view of the world and a view of the world that I didn't think existed, whereas some, some countries have been remarkably shambolic in their approach. So, again, it comes back to is it about me or is it about others? So, Chris, tell them how we met. Well, actually, uh, before you go on, where did you go from being a bouncer? You're sitting there throwing people out of a pub. Then where do you go from there? Yeah, and I, then I, how do you meet? I threw people out of many pubs. Over many and just, you know, hey, I'm enjoying this, and I bet the listeners are too, because we're going broad and deep, but we're talking about stuff that has real meaning that if yeah. you haven't thought about recently as a listener, this might be really re resonating inside of you because you felt and thought things and you didn't know why. And Louise and Chris and maybe myself were kind of unpacking the behind-the-scenes stuff of why things are appearing and feeling the way they are. So mm. hopefully this helps you grow. And that's all the show is about is helping people grow as iron sharpeneth iron. So the man accountants of a friend. So you're grabbing guys and throwing them out the door. Go from there, Chris. Yeah, I continue to grab people and throw them out the door for quite a long time. I threw people at a concert. I threw people out of private venues. I became quite skilled at throwing people out of places. I, I was the person who stood on the door and said, no, mate, you're not coming in dressed like that. So I was the person everybody disliked. And I did that as a grad student. I, I realised that academia was not for me when I realised how much politics was involved. It, it, universities are immensely political environments. And we were changing here in Australia from the notion of permanent tenure to almost lecturers, researchers being contractors. And you would spend weeks filling out grant applications. And so your job literally became a bureaucrat. You filled in grant applications, you graded papers, you dealt with first-year students, which is dealing with the students is not a bad thing because a teaching load is part of everybody's responsibility. But one thing, I, I had a, a seminal experience. I, I, walked, I was walking across the lawns at uni one day, and I, I bumped into someone I'd been in first year with who I'd also been in high school with. And I said, Simon, I haven't seen you for years. What, 
what the hell, what gives? And he said, look, I dropped out after first year and went and did economics. And I went, really, that must have been so exciting. And he said, yeah, I've just gotten back from a year in New York and I'm just about to head off for a year in London. And he was me heading off to a chute to help out pimply-faced first years who couldn't seem to bathe right or put their pants on the right way. And I said, okay, I've got to ask, how much do they pay you for this jaunting around the world gig? And he told me, and it was around about five times what I was getting from my stipend as a tutor. And I thought to myself, hell, I smarter than you at high school and smarter than you at university. What the hell has gone wrong? And sort of coincidentally at the same time, I was doing a little bit of off-site consulting work for biotech firms who were trying to raise money from venture capitalists and eventually moving towards a listing on the stock exchange. And that actually prompted an interest in investing. And I, being of scientific ilk, thought that the market was a problem that could be solved, not realising that it was it could not be solved. The only problem that could be solved is the internal one, because trading is an internal endeavour. And I thought, well, I'd been investing for a while for myself. And I thought, well, who knows about trading? And I thought stupidly to myself, stockbrokers do. So I eventually conned my way into a stockbroking firm. And I managed to do that on the strength of the fact that I knew how to add and subtract and that I knew how scientific calculators worked. And they were particularly impressed by the fact that I had one of the old Hewlett Packard 12C little chocolate box calculators with a very solid buttons. Has no equals button. Yeah, I went to school for engineering. We had to use a similar one. Yeah, and they thought that was magic. They thought it has no equals button. How does it work? But it still gives you an answer. That's remarkable. We must hire this person. And so, I, look, the idiocy of my decision was re- revealed in the first week I was there in that the person sitting opposite me had sold shoes up until two weeks earlier and the person sitting next to me had sold carpet three weeks earlier and that that was, that was their entire sort of training. And so I thought, well, I'll make the best of it whilst I'm here because I had access to information, which for a scientist is a big thing. I had direct access at the time to a trading floor. We still had trading floors here in Australia. We didn't go fully electronic till about 1988-89. And so I used it as a learning experience. And I used what the environment had presented me to soak up as much as I could. And because I'm a, a little bit quantitative, derivatives were just being introduced here in Australia. And derivatives are by and large quantitative. Well, let me rephrase that. Stockbrokers at the time thought they were magic because they were priced according to them by hieroglyphics, when in actual fact they're priced according to fairly simple year 11 maths. So if you've done year 11 maths, you can price an option quite easily. And they thought that was magic as well. And so I I had a bent towards trading derivatives and that's where I sort of made my mark and eventually got sick of broking because you get sick of the people you work with and it comes back to Louise's very, very first point when we started is that you're spending eight to 10 hours a day 
with people you don't like, investing your identity in something that is, is simply not reciprocated. Because it, as, as, as listeners would know, finance is a ruthless, brutal industry. It does have a religion, and the religion is simply money. And it doesn't matter how you get it. It doesn't matter whether you front-run clients. It doesn't matter whether you insider trade. It really doesn't matter. The, the rules are secondary for everybody. And so I eventually got sick of that and went into semi-retirement. Was actually dragged out of semi-retirement by Louise, which is a little bit annoying. So you, you can probably tell them how you managed to do that. <laughs> well, All right, so pick up there. So this is where you guys are meeting and joining yeah. and then bring us into today. <laughs> so... We were asked to present separately at the ATAA, the Australian Technical Analysts Association. I was the warm-up act. He was the main event, being Australia's first author to present a book and write a book on share trading. Chris Tate was the big name, you know. Everybody came to see Chris Tate, like a bit of a groupie following. Like, ooh, I was nervous. I was really nervous. Oh, I was. I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I hope I don't make a fool of myself in front of this semi-god of, of trading. Nothing worked. <laughs> the, the, every, everything that night fell apart. There was no electricity going to the building. The door was locked. And I went into complete management mode and started ordering everybody around and said, you, you find a locksmith. You, you find out why there's no electricity. Find out why, why this. And... My enduring memory of that night is Chris Tate sitting back with his hands behind his head, with his feet up on the table, with a huge smile on his face, looking at me, ordering everybody around. So, yeah, yeah, my inner, inner boss came out. What do you remember about that night, Christopher? Oh, not a lot, actually. <laughs> it was it, <laughs> I, I, only the... One of the things that intrigues me is the complete inability of some people to organise anything. And it was, I was intrigued that this is a professional organisation and they'd not organised to get the auditorium they're using unlocked. But it wasn't indicative of their usual behaviour though, Chris. They're a very professional organisation. They'd, they'd been locked out by the ASX, so... Yeah, yeah no, 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 one, no one had worked out how to work the AV, how to turn the lighting on. No, not a thing worked. If you can imagine a complete dumpster fire of an event, then that's, that's pretty much it. It's just, it was a complete and utter debacle. So much so to the point that with the AV not working, we had to resort to being old school and get the... David might not even remember. You remember the old overhead projectors that lecturers used to write on? They'd write on the acetate paper. Yes. And to the point where we had to get the laptop and turn it sideways and upside down and get the overhead projector to project the image from the screen of the laptop onto the screen behind you. So somebody had to stand there holding the damn thing for the entire presentation. It, it was... A a wonderful, wonderful debacle of an evening. But it was but the good news is 
you and Louise met, and now you're here today. So tell us about that part of the journey through chaos. You know, what is it? Through the ashes, the phoenix rises, right? Well, they all went out to dinner, and I went home. <laughs> I thought this was a complete matter schmozzle. I'm going home, and I just went home and said, so do, "Do you want my version or your version?" Oh, you go for it, Christopher. I know this is going to be damning for me. <laughs> he thinks that I stalked him, just as a spoiler alert. Yeah, we're, we're only doing this on Zoom because she's not allowed within one kilometre of me. Whatever. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm, I'm quite happy with my own company. I, I'm, you know, not completely isolationist, but I, I have a routine to my life and a rhythm. And my phone would ring and Louise would go, I'm bored. You want to go out for coffee? No, I don't drink coffee and I'm not bored. And this went on for ages. And eventually we started a business together. There you go. End of story. (laughs) All right, Louise, you want to fill us in a little more detail than that? Oh, look, no, actually, to be open with you, David, that was it. Is We were both so bored because as full-time traders, when we say we're both full-time traders, there's nothing to do. After you've done your analysis and you've put in your positions and you've set your stops to take you out of the market if things turn, there's nothing to do. So having massive slabs of time where all of your friends have a job and you're not really certain about can you go in and see that person for lunch again or is it just too much it there's there's a training wheels aspect to going as a full-time trader that many people don't realize so to find another full-time trader was firstly a relief because then I could have a potential new friend and secondly somebody that had that background in case you know to discuss things with to have that network so that's what was really lacking in both of our lives you know we really found in each other that that running partner if you like that person who would be there in your corner and that was going back to oh god 97 i think yeah so chris has huge strengths and louise you have huge strengths what did you guys see in one another that complemented and made you both better together but i i think it's probably just to start by addressing that as a general perspective Many people who go into business together do so because they perceive similarities in one another. But the problem with that is if you look at it as a Venn diagram, there is too much overlap. And when you have too much overlap, you have two people trying to do exactly the same thing in the same way, and that doesn't work. The thing you need to do is open the diagram up so that the areas of overlap in the business are actually quite small. So that you, you don't, you literally don't stand on one another's toes and each has an area of responsibility that they are, that, that's their domain and, and it remains their domain. Louise sees the world in a remarkably different way than I do. And as a consequence, our strengths are very, very different we, we we take responsibility for different parts of the business. And so there's very, very little overlap. So there's not that friction or tension that people get where, where they're in a partnership where there is a lot of overlap in the business. 
the moment you get that overlap to an extreme degree, then you're going to clash because you're, you're bumping into one another and you're impinging upon one another's domain and preserve. So where was the beauty in the relationship that attracted you guys professionally to one another? Because I know you're both married to other spouses. So if anybody's listening, they're not a couple. They're yeah. separate business partners. That's good to mention, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they both have happy families totally separate from one another. So she wasn't really stalking him. Chris was just screwing around there. Everybody needs an office wife, I think. <laughs> it, just, it just makes life easier. Well, thing, so what made you two saw, agree? What made you yeah. two agree it's a good relationship? Yeah, the things that I saw in Chris that I guess complemented the things that I have as inherent aspects is that firstly our values are the same, but the way that we see the world is completely different. And that was interesting to me. So we both very much have as a core value, do what you say you're going to do. And that's a real core for both of us, even to the point of personal detriment. Another aspect, and this is something, David, that I, I know that you're going to relate with, is this is a, a theory I think it was Pinker that put this out, but please don't quote me on the exact person, but there's a theory that's a giver, match, a taker. Now, David, you're a giver and I'm a giver too. We will almost give too much. You know, we try and open doors for people. We, we do things that will really complement their life, even if it's hurting us. <laughs> so there's that giver aspect, and I've got that also. And from Chris, I'm learning to be a matcher where you start with a small thing that you're going to do together, a tiny little activity, and then you see how that goes and then match it with the other person's giving. Now, that's the ideal way to be, of course, because that's the, an enduring longer-term relationship with anything, with its, whether it's a business partnership, whether it's a relationship with your doctor even. There has to be some level of matching there. And, of course, the third area is a taker. Now, takers, oh, there are just too many of them in the world, too many of them in business. That's where you're looking to only fleece the other person. You don't have their best interests at heart. You don't have anything to do with what the gain to you will be as a part of your vernacular. So in terms of that give and match a taker, the core thing I saw in Chris is that he was a matcher and I was a giver and I wanted to move towards aspirationally being a matcher and that's where he's actually helped me he's helped me harden up in terms of my views not everybody's on my side he's wiped out some of that innocence that naivety that I had there's a little bit of an age difference and I think that helped he had some more life experience and the way that he handled himself in terms of looking after people where he's got that integrity to follow through I definitely related with that and that's travelled all the way through. We've got a mentor program where we look after traders. We've been running it as a repeat for free course for 21 years. Now, if you think of that, that makes it the longest wow. repeat for free course Yeah, in the trading arena. And the fact that it's repeat for free, we've had people from the very beginning who have repeated year after year after year. And for Chris and I to work on that together, like it's our little baby, like it's it's our child really, and to look after the people involved, 
and to see the changes in their life. You know, both of us have got the biggest kick out of mentoring people, seeing the changes in the schools that they send their children to, the cars that they drive, the holidays that they go on, the charities that they can give to. We've raised so much money for our chosen charity and it has been wonderful to see the impact of a concerted focal point, a laser view in terms of giving money as a group to a charity in the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars to Opportunity International, which is microfinancing. That in itself, that is very akin to our values. You know, microfinancing is where the group gives a loan to somebody in a developing nation and they pay that back within three to five years. There's a 97% chance that they're going to pay that back now, that loan is to establish an entrepreneur in their own business. It might be carving tools. It might be an extra male goat because they've got a herd there and they need someone to sire all, for all of the female goats. There's a range of different businesses, micro businesses that people need help with. So to be able to funnel our efforts into helping and to being of service to our traders, to the community at large, to see the impact of that, that has been a dream come true. When I had a corporate job, I never had that feeling of complete ripple effect throughout society. I mean, now, fast, fast forward, both of us are best-selling authors. We've trained thousands of people. We're the best-known names in Australia for trading. And that aside, that doesn't mean much to us. What means a lot to both of us is that we have had that ripple effect in terms of helping other people and developing their lifestyle, even to the point where my children have it as a core value. You know, my, my kids, I've got an 18-year-old as well, David. I've got a 13-year-old. And I remember one year, the idea is that each year we run the mentor program, I get my kids involved in some way you know and one year I remember my little boy he would have been about eight years old and he said to me mum why are you so excited about getting the mentor program together this year what is it about it is it that the kids of those people can have the things that we have as a family is that it and I just went oh Yes, you've totally got it. It's not about us. It's about the people that we're helping. And the oh, what a gratifying moment life. to see your son getting oh, it. Absolutely. Because he's had to sacrifice. My daughter has had to sacrifice. They've had to go without their mum for time to time. Three months of the year when I'm looking after the mentorees, that's my total focus. So they know they can't just get their needs met. They know they can't interfere if I'm speaking to somebody about their trading plan and a financial matter those kids have to really toe the line and realize this is not all about them there's there's a bigger reason here there's a bigger purpose and for them to see that and to see an example of it you know he, those kids have got two full-time parents in the house with them sending them to private school going on holidays that are better than the average but it's not about that. It's what we can do to help others achieve what we have achieved. And that's what gives both Chris and me my kicks because really together we are stronger in terms of helping than we would be separately. 
That's beautiful. So today, where are you and Chris today? Like, what are your core services? Like, what do you perform and offer? Like, you have the mentorship and are you still trading? Where are you and Chris today and what services can our listeners come to you for to grow? We both trade our own accounts and we both run the mentor program, but really that's the the focus for us, the mentor program, helping other traders get established and getting established with integrity and as a profession, that's where our hot button, absolutely, that's where we head for. So for anybody that is keen on getting established as a trader, what you need to do is go to tradinggame.com.au and register your details so we can stay in touch. So once you do, I'll send you my five-part e-course called Trading Made Simple. And it's an audio e-course. You can just go through it at your own time and that will help get you started professionally. But also if you're a trader, you've already dabbled in the markets. Goodness knows they're the flavour of the month at the moment, aren't they? The thing that you'll get with it is a trading plan template. It'll take you through the core steps that you need to establish in terms of getting your trading business up and running. It's questions, and if you can't answer them, it means you shouldn't be in the markets. I still use that trading plan template personally, and thousands of people from around the world have got that trading plan template. I don't know how people work without a written trading plan. I don't see that that's stacking the odds in your favour. The probability of success goes right down unless you, you have a plan to be able to trade the markets. Yeah, the Bible says, but there's no vision that people perish, but he that keeps the law, happy is he. You need to have a vision, reverse engineer the plan and go get it. So what we'll do is we'll put links in the show notes to everything we just discussed. But is this something that only people in Australia can be part of? Or could people in India, could people in Canada? We we, we presented, we've actually got, we actually had a host of clients in last year's program from the US. So we have them from... The US, UK, New Zealand, Canada, South America, South Africa, because it's a digital program. And I must admit that this is the one thing that, you know, the technology that we've evolved over the past two decades has enabled people to do is hold these virtual electronic events where it doesn't really matter where you're sitting, you're still part of it. And so because it's completely electronic delivery, that, that that's never been an issue. And we set it up initially as that so that it wouldn't be an impediment. And as the technology has improved, it's just become more and more seamless. The mere fact that we are having this conversation now, we're on the other side of the planet to you, but the conversation is seamless. And so that's that's never been an impediment. And besides, it, it gives us people in other countries, if we're ever enabled to go to another country, to go and visit. And so it gives us a host of people to drop in on around the world and it gives people the capacity when they come to Australia to drop in on people here. So wherever you sit is an irrelevancy now. Okay, that's fantastic. So let's do this. I want to make sure I haven't dishonored you, either one of you, or what you're doing. So in your past, in your personal story, in your professional story to where we are today, is there anything that we miss, Chris, 
or Louise that you want to cover and touch on? Because the next question I'm going to ask you is we kind of know where you're at today. Where are you going and how can we as the listener help you get there? Like, what are your personal goals? So is there anything we missed? I'll start with Chris. Anything we missed you want to touch on? I don't think so. Although one point I would emphasize for everyone, and this, this is a point I emphasize with myself a lot, do not downplay the role of the hand you've been dealt because we, we are all dealt a hand. And for some of us, the hand is advantageous. But let, let me, I, I occasionally, I, I was fortunate enough, I uh, got a scholarship to what, what here we call a private school. So it's not a state-run school. And so my, my scholarship paid for my tuition through 12 years of schooling. I occasionally get my school magazine. They found me through LinkedIn. Crafty buggers. And so I, I get emailed a copy of the school's magazine. And it's it's all about how people are doing what they're doing, the, the usual thing that these, these places carry on about. And what is intriguing is they, they have a, a section in the back that says, where are they now sort of thing and what they're doing. And there'll be the usual smattering of people who've gone into medicine, law, politics, or all that sort of thing that you would expect people from my background to go, go into. But then you'll also get, you know, little Johnny graduated in 2010 and now proudly drives a tow truck. And you think, well, okay, you don't, you don't want to be a bit too harsh, but your parents have probably spent upwards of over half a million dollars on your education you probably could have learnt to drive a tow truck at a state school. You don't need this, this, this background to do it. And the point being is that you were given enormous advantages. Now, driving a tow truck might be your life's ambition, but is that, a, is that a true reflection of the investment in you, the skills you've been given, the hand you've been dealt? Because I think a lot of people are delta hand and they don't make the most of it. They accept that this is the way the world is and they don't move on from that. And you need to, I think, there's, there's a, and I draw this from the book by, what's her name, Cheryl Sandberg, Lean In. You need to lean into your life like you're leaning into the wind. So you need to be pushing forward little bit by little bit so that each day you are a better version of yourself. And that could be that you are you're a kinder person, a gentler person. You're a little bit smarter because you have read something. I know that reading is an anathema now to people, but it's an immensely important skill. It might be that you've written something down that is important to you or, or you've come across a phrase or something that resonates with you, that that you want to share, but each day you are a better version. I think what happens is that people often come out of backgrounds and go, right, this is the Mark I version of me. And in 30 years' time, there's still the Mark I version. When I used to bounce, I, I, I stopped bouncing in the 1980s. When I would go back to venues in the 1990s, there would still be the same people working on the door. And because I don't change much, they would recognise me, I would recognise them. And 
that was their career. And it can't really, chucking people out of doors can't really be a career. But they'd accepted the version of them from the early 1980s when everyone had big hair and big shoulder pads was the version that was going to exist now. And they'd not moved forward in any way, shape or form. They'd not learnt a new skill. They'd not been anywhere. They'd not travelled. They'd not associated with different people. And one of the good things about travel is you're forced to associate with people who are different to you. And you see that they have lives that are like yours, but they're different, but they still work. And it's if you're going to, if I have one philosophy, it is be slightly better than you were the day before. And it doesn't matter what with, but it's that constant progression, that constant moving forward. And I think people are overcome by their own inertia, both emotionally, psychologically, mentally. They, they just sit and stop and that's it. Then they wait for death. Yeah, I think what you're saying is amazing advice and something that we all need to consider and apply. You know, the Bible says, you know, too much is given, much is required. People quote Spider-Man, with much power comes great responsibility. Really? And yeah. exactly, exactly what you're saying is true. We're wasting opportunity in life if we're just staying yeah. the same. There's a wonderful, uh, I'm not one for these YouTube motivational things because I just look at them and go, that's nonsense. But there is one that is given as a commencement address by the former commander of the U.S. Navy SEALs. And I know him, exactly what you're showing. He starts with talking about making his bed. That's yes. I'll and find him, the link and put it in the show notes, but discuss it with the audience. And because the important point he makes, the bit that resonates with me, is that he, he says, if you make a difference to one person each day through an act of service, kindness, attention, whatever, you might not think that that is much. But if they do the same thing over the course of your life, that single interaction balloons out to have affected thousands of people in a positive way, not in a negative way. And, and that's the most, that, I think that's the very, very powerful part of his message is that very, very, very simple things make a difference to people. It's, it, sometimes it simply takes an act of kindness or compassion and it changes someone's day, which may in turn change their life. And it's an odd, look, I won't say it's an odd thing. It's an interesting thing for someone who's had a lifelong career in the military to say that, and admittedly, it probably comes from his mindset of acts of service, that there is something bigger than him and he is serving that. But it's an interesting thing. And a lot of people, I think, stop. They, they, they watch it and they go, well, he's just telling me to make my bed. No, he's actually telling you to make a difference every day in tiny, tiny ways. And if you can make a difference in tiny ways every day, then the world probably becomes a slightly better place because of you. It doesn't have to be a grandiose thing. You don't have to be Bill Gates removing malaria from the world because you get this ballooning out of the way interactions work. Oh, that is a fantastic consideration for life and a fantastic inspiration and kind of nudging to all of our listeners and myself included louise do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share or is there something we skipped in your story 
Yeah, there, there is actually, David. The thing that we skipped is that you are doing fantastic work in this world for everything that you're providing here for people out of your heart and bringing people into the success arena, creating an environment where they've got things to think of at all times that are positive, that effect that you are having in this world, it's staggering. Now, I know you know this, but your listeners don't know this. I wasn't able to do this call. This is my first podcast in about a year. I wasn't able to do this call because I had a big patch of ill health. I couldn't speak for the first nine months of this year. I've only just started to get my voice back and 2021 is going to be different. 2020 was really not a fantastic year on many levels. My mother died as well. And at all stages, through all processes with that, David, while you were waiting for this, this call to happen, you were so patient and so caring and you really made me feel like, hey, we've got a bond here. And in terms of that, that is what I think your listeners don't realise. And I know we are very, very grateful for you, David. Oh, I, I feel the same way. You guys have been wonderful. It's been a joy and a privilege. I tell my family all the time, I said, I know that we're doing this to help people, but it brings joy and helps me. So it's a blessing to know you and Chris, and thank you for your kind words. And it definitely, I, I feel the same way. So thank you. Yeah. You mentioned a really good word there, and it's a word people don't use. And it, it is the notion of joy. It, it is what brings you joy, but more importantly, how can you bring joy to others? And it's not a word we use much anymore. And I don't know why it's dropped out of the popular lexicon of language. It just seems to have disappeared. And it may have disappeared because, again, it's not a reflection of me. Bringing joy for somebody else is an act of service. So it's not about me. It's about somebody else. So it might just have become an unpopular word because of that. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the little kid song, you know, joy means Jesus, others than yourself. And like you said, service. And we're in a narcissistic society. So people don't want to put other people first. People don't want to be sacrificial. People don't want to serve because it's not about them. Like you, you made that joke about yeah. your mother-in-law. I'm going to talk about me. Now you talk about me. <laughs> That's the world we live in, sadly. But the good news is there's people like you and, and Louise and we have each other. So it's like when you find those people that still have their priorities right, cling to them. And when we get off track, you smack me in the head to get me back on. You have my permission publicly on, on record. Um, the good, good smack around the ear does people the world good. I it's agree completely. I am not into abuse but I think However, all of us need a good beating once in a while. Yeah, it, 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 we, come, we come back to that thing of, it, it, and you'd appreciate this as a martial artist, everybody should do a martial art, not because of the physical benefit, but because of the mental benefit of discipline, persistence, courage, acceptance of failure, because you fail an awful lot, over and over again and over, over and over again. And if you do one of the grappling arts, I did judo, you did you do jujitsu and wrestling. Yeah. 
you fail all the time. It, 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 it just, for some reason, you're off your game. It doesn't work. You're in the wrong spot. It, and you just have to go, yeah, I'm done. Let's start again. And there's some pain involved, a good, healthy pain. If someone puts you in an arm bar, that's going to hurt. So you don't want that to happen again, and you're motivated to learn. Yeah, it, it's, it's like being choked out. You soon realize that anoxic brain injuries are bad for you, so you tap long before you go gray. Some yeah, people. I had somebody asking me, somebody was asking me just the other day, like, have you ever tapped? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, everybody has. I'm like, if you say somebody hasn't tapped, they're either lying about actually participating in the sport or they're lying yeah. about their ability. Everybody does. It's, you know, everybody lands awkwardly when they're being thrown. It all looks beautiful on the mat. And you go, I'll land perfectly when I'm thrown. And there are times when you're in the wrong position and you hit the deck and you go, I think that's me done for the evening, I think. I've just rattled every circuit in my brain. Yep, yep, absolutely. And so that is so true. If you, I, Not everybody can do physical sports because mm. of the position they're in, but if you can do something, I think we all need balance in our life. And what Chris is saying, the, the martial arts, I love personally wrestling and jujitsu. You know, you could have your own discipline, but just that focus just that achievement, that personal challenge and the struggle and the constant failure, it helps you grow. It really helps you grow and it humbles you to say, wow, I looked at that guy or girl and I thought, and then they just threw me around like a rag doll. Yeah. It, it's, it, you get that. It's like that wonderful, there's a wonderful poster that you, you see in powerlifting gyms that says somewhere a Chinese girl is warming up with your maximum. <laughs> And you go, that's about right. That's how it is today. Oh, man, that is so good. All right, well, we'll, we'll stop on that thought. But now, is there anywhere you're going? We're going to put a link to your programs in the show notes, what you're both doing, how to connect with you. Is there anything else, Louise or Chris, that you want to talk about, that, that you have a project, a book coming out, anything that we can help you now get there? We are so keen on helping other people. We don't need to change the formula, David. We've worked it out. We've cracked the code. We've got 21 years of the mentor program behind us, so we're not changing a thing. We are looking to find people who are like-minded, who want to change their family's life, who want to have that ambition fulfilled, who want to be exceptional traders, developing a side income compared to their, their full-time income. So in case, just in case, they have to do what I did, which was switch out of my full-time income and become a trader. It wasn't as much of a transition compared to if I had to stand and start begin. So at least I'd had background with it before I had to switch out. You never know when a health issue is going to hit. You never know when life circumstances are going to mean that you don't want to do that job anymore. You have to be able to do the job, but you have to be able to want to do the job that you're applying yourself towards as well. So if something like that changes, trading is an excellent backstop. So finding people who are of a similar mindset, that's what our vision is for this year. Awesome. So if you're out there listening, doesn't matter what country you're in, time zones, we can work around, language barriers, welcome to Google Translate. We can figure it out or you guys can figure it out. Talk to Chris, talk to Louise, uh, reach out to them. And like we were talking about this whole episode, don't just listen to good truth, but do it. 
repeat it so you can have a great life in this life and the next. And like Chris was saying, be filled with that joy by serving others and by being more than just yourself. So that's it for me. I'm David Pasqualone. This is the Remarkable People Podcast. Hang tight at the end of this episode for a special offer. Louise, Chris, thank you so much for being here. If we missed anything, shoot now or at least hold your peace till the next episode. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. You're a beautiful man. Oh, same thing. So stick around as a listener for a couple more minutes. We got some special offers for you. And again, Chris, Louise, we love you. Thank you for being here. It's been a true blessing. I've, I've really been inspired and learned, and I'm sure our audience has too. So have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon. Was that not a remarkable episode? I love Louise and Chris. They are our friends abroad, or maybe they're close to you, but for us, they're all the way on the other side of the world, but we're so thankful for society and a culture that we can connect through the internet and just develop a friendship, even though we can't be sharing a cup of coffee. So check out their free offer, go to their website, look at the show notes, get that free plan and playbook and see what it does for your life. Let me know about it. Also, as another bonus, we are so thankful that you're listening to our show. We're so thankful that we're growing together, and we're so thankful you're sharing it with your friends. And this is what we're going to do. You stuck around to the end. We appreciate you. Share this podcast with your friends and family. Just say a little bit of something that you believe, put it on your social media, and send us a screenshot. We're going to send you a free t-shirt. So, All you got to do is share the podcast. We send you a free t-shirt. Everybody benefits and grows. It's a win-win-win. So when you take that screenshot, email me at me at davidpasqualone.com. If you're watching, you can see my t-shirt, me and me at davidpasqualone.com. Send me the screenshot, your mailing address, and the size of the shirt you'd like. And if you can't see my shirt because you're listening to the podcast, it's me at D-A-V-I-D. P is in Papa, A is in Alpha, S is in Sierra, Q-U-A-L-O-N-E.com. Have a great day. Thanks for li- listening to the show or watching. Check out Louise and Chris's Tate material. They're great humans, remarkable even, and so are you. We love you. Good night, and see you next week. Ciao. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. Remarkable People Podcast. Listen, do, repeat for life.